The world will not stay up all night on February 25th to watch the results of Nigeria's presidential and parliamentary elections come in. The world should. Especially this time, whatever the result, Africa's biggest country and its biggest democracy will have new leadership. The incumbent president, Mohamedou Buhari, is standing down after serving the maximum of two terms. The intray of whoever ends up succeeding Buhari will be piled dauntingly high. Nigeria has a currency crisis, more general economic woes, at least two Islamist insurgencies, several separatist conflicts, and any number of sectarian disputes. But Nigeria also has colossal possibilities. It is 216 million people, give or take, most of them under 30. Aside from that immense human capital, Nigeria is lavishly blessed with natural resources. A cleanly and competently governed Nigeria, as well as being a boon to its impatient citizens, would be a beacon in a region still plagued by corruption and coups d'etat. How governable is Nigeria? Who are the people who believe themselves equal to this singular challenge? And where would they even start? This is The Foreign Desk. People seem very frustrated with the cash shortage. Governors in the ruling party think they might be affected. They have bitterly complained to the president about this. And people, especially political elites, are jittery that ordinary Nigerians might draw a straight line from the hardship they are facing to punishing their party at the polls. Peter Obi is a guy who has sold himself as this sort of affable technocrat who is uncorruptible. He's a person who has created a brand that says that politicians should take the work of governing very, very seriously. And that's what he's selling. And that, for a lot of young people, is incredibly refreshing in a country in which most politicians sell themselves as saviours, as people who are above the average person. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Well, joining me first to talk through the main contenders for Nigeria's presidency is the journalist and author of Africa is Not a Country, Depo Faloyan. What I wanted to do in this part of the show, by way of introducing everything else, was just to run through the front runners. So we'll start with the front runner of the front runners. This is Labour's Peter Obi. Is he something genuinely different, or would he be something genuinely different if the polls are right and he does win? That is the hope of young people across the country. Peter Obi is a guy who has sold himself as this sort of affable technocrat who is uncorruptible and that is his main selling point. And he is a former governor of a large eastern state. And that's exactly largely how he governed the state. You know, there are very few, if any, allegations of corruption against him. He was a person who was approachable by the average person. He made it an effort to host town halls. So there's a lot we know about him because he's put himself out there. You know, he's a person who has created a brand that says that politicians should take the work of governing very, very seriously. And that's what he's selling. And that, for a lot of young people, is incredibly refreshing Mm. in a country in which most politicians sell themselves as saviours, as people who are above the average person. Tinubu, who we'll get on to, famously Mm. said, Emile Ocon, which translates to, it's my turn. And (laughs) It needs work as a slogan, doesn't it? It really, really does (laughs) need work. You know, that's what the average Nigerian is used to, people who feel like there is a line and they got in the line and now it's their turn. And what the young people of the country are trying to do is they're trying to basically break up that line and say no more. Peter Obi, as you've mentioned, though he is 
pitching himself very much the outsider candidate, is not coming to this totally cold. He was the governor of Anambra. And when we look at his record there, does that look like the kind of thing that can be translated to national government? And would it have what we know of his approach, the kind of transformational results that he's promising? Nigeria is a very difficult place. It's, you know, a population of anything up to 200 million people, perhaps 150 million, maybe 170 million. It's an incredibly complicated environment. And so it's always hard to extrapolate from the Mm. ability to govern a single state to govern this mass of conflicting ethnic groups, religions, special interests. It's hard to say. What his supporters will tell you is that they just want someone who approaches the job in a different way. There are those who have accused him of not spending enough money in Anambra. And his reply is that we become used to governors essentially just handing out cash when they feel in the mood to do so. And he's saying that, you know, let's introduce some processes. Let's bring in a system that hopefully will last well beyond me as president. And that's essentially his selling point. Let's move on to Bola Tanubu. He is the nominee of the All Progressives Congress, which is the outgoing president's party. Is that fact helping him or hindering him? Has he been eager to claim Bahari's mantle or is Bahari the kind of president at this point who you pretend you barely ever even met? <laughs> it's mixed, really. He has decided to cling on to the mantle of APC, his party mm. as a whole, as sort of the rightful governors of Nigeria. And it also depends on the day. You know, him and Buhari are not close friends in particular. Buhari has reluctantly endorsed him. Everyone believes that Buhari really wanted his vice president to get the nomination. Mm -hmm. But he is sort of, on one day, sort of endorses Tinubu and then says, you know, but everybody vote your conscience, which has angered Tinubu from time to time, who feels like Buhari isn't grateful enough for Tinubu's previous support of him. He once said that when Buhari lost a previous attempt to become president, Buhari called him crying. This is the sort of pettiness that Tinubu likes when you upset him. So, you know, he is someone who is running on certainly that continuity is key to Nigeria's progress, but he is setting himself as his own man. He has also been a state governor of Lagos State. There are, as you will be aware, many picturesque stories attached to his time in that role, up to and including big truckloads of money being driven in and out of his private residence. What do we actually know about his record in politics? Is he exactly the kind of thing, the personification of what Peter Obi claims he can do away with? Yes, exactly. Tinubu pitches himself as the kingmaker. He's Mm. someone who just knows how to get things done, whether you consider it to be the right way, the polite way, the moral way. He believes that he just knows how to do things. And he claims that he is the sort of founder of modern Lagos. And that is a pitch that many people find hard to really believe. You know, Lagos, at the time in which he was governor, was certainly a period of time in which people feel like money was generally available, but it was not built on any sort of sustainability at all. It was this sort of attempt at real trickle-down economics that eventually, as it always does, sort of runs out. And it sort of shocked people that he decided to run for president because they always felt that he was happy in that position as kingmaker and that, you know, he at times doesn't seem to be in the best of health. But as he said in a speech, he doesn't want to die without Nigeria forgetting who he is. And that's why he's running for president. Well, moving along to the the former vice president, Atiku Abubakar, who, of course, has had a previous go at this. He lost to Bahari in 2019. What's your read on why he's running? That's a very good question. Um, (laughs) How do I sort of put this in a way that's not me accusing him, but many say that he doesn't even live in Nigeria. He sort of runs for president, (laughs) goes off to his home in Dubai 
and then four years later returns to Nigeria and says, you know, I'd quite like to be president. He was vice president to Obasanjo, who they didn't have a very good working mm. relationship with each other. And Obasanjo would often talk down about his own vice president, you know, saying that he keeps trying to give Atiku work to do and Atiku doesn't seem too interested in it. <laughs> Atiku also has been accused by a report by the US Senate of funneling money into the US illegally. And so a lot of this feels like Atiku trying to, similar in many ways to Tinubu, trying to set his own legacy. He seems like someone who just wants to have that title so that people like Obasanjo can feel like they underestimated it. But aside from having a reputation for being a bone idol crook who can barely stand to spend any time in the country he seeks to lead, does he have any weaknesses? (laughs) (laughs) You know, for him, he doesn't seem too bothered about how people think of him and how they feel about him. (laughs) He seems to exist in his own world. And it must be a blissful place to be. And in many ways, he is, for a lot of people, you know, the opposite of Tinubu. Tinubu seems determined to be president by any means necessary. Atiku doesn't seem, you know, this seems to be sort of a side hustle for him. As we look even further down the ballot paper, because there is quite a wide field here, are there any, I mean, I I think we can probably safely assume that none of these people have any meaningful chance of winning it, but are there any sort of potentially intriguing or crucial characters looming there? There's one, a former Northern governor called Kwan Kwan So, who many believe should have joined forces with Peter Obi and perhaps they would have, you know, created the perfect third-party ticket, but, you know, they both decided to run separately. Kwankoso has a lot of strength in the north, where Atiku, as a northerner, is hoping to, you know, run up the votes there. So, you know, I think Kwankoso could really act as a spoiler for Atiku there. He's probably the only candidate who has a chance of, you know, gaining a significant amount of votes to potentially throw this to a runoff. The constitution says that a winning candidate must secure about 15% of the votes from Mm -hmm. 25 states. That's something that, if you have four strong candidates, might be incredibly difficult to do. So what you then might have is a situation in which you have a runoff and if either, you know, Peter Obi or Kwan Kwan so don't make it to the runoff, then they become kingmakers and, you know, many believe they'll throw it to Atiku in, in, in that case. But that makes it an incredibly exciting proposition. Deepo, thank you for joining us. That was Deepo Fallian, author of Africa is Not a Country. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. This is The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. The weeks leading up to Nigeria's election were dominated by an ineptly implemented currency reform which left many participants in Nigeria's heavily cash-oriented economy dramatically short-changed. Well, joining me now to explain what happened and why is the journalist and West Africa correspondent for the Financial Times, Anu Adoye. Anu, what we want to discuss in this part of the show is the recent currency reform. So, first of all, what was the thinking behind introducing the new banknotes? Why was that necessary? Depends on who you ask. (laughs) But the central bank late last year said they were bringing in new notes, 200, 500 and 1,000 naira notes to... One, stop counterfeiting of the old notes. Two, make the notes more secure. They said it would help move Nigeria to becoming a more cashless society because cash is still very much king in Nigeria. More than 60% of transactions in Nigeria are still done via cash. So the central bank said, look, if we bring in a new currency, these are our stated objectives. So that's what they said in October of 2022. If you ask 
people who are more cynical, they will say the central bank brought this in to stop politicians, to stop vote buying, which is a fairly uniquely Nigerian thing where politicians stockpile cash at home to distribute usually on election day to induce people to vote for their parties. So what effect did the cash shortage end up having on everyday life, especially as you say, cash being so important in Nigeria? How chaotic did it get? It's been incredibly chaotic. If you have been out on the streets of Lagos reporting and there have been queues at cash machines across the city. And this is something that is being replicated across the country as well. People are unable to withdraw their cash from cash machines. Fights have broken out in banking halls because people are just jostling for very little cash that is available. And because most people's lives revolve around cash, there's been massive disruption for everyday life. There's been videos on social media of people going to cash machines as early as 2 a.m., 3 a.m., so that they'll be the first in line when the banks open to be able to use cash machines to be able to get money. So there's been massive disruption across the country. Was this just a scheme that was badly implemented? There were these reports, which I'm sure you've seen, of bank managers hoarding the new banknotes. Is there anything to that? And if there is, why would bank managers do that? I think it's on paper, it's a reasonably decent policy, right? Let's move Nigeria into the 21st century and let people rely less on cash. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. But in a country of 200 million people where most transactions still happen by cash, I think it was a little bit optimistic, if you're being generous, to think that you could swap that much currency in just over six to eight weeks, right? This is a massive country where lots of people still live in rural areas and don't have access to banks to begin with. And the amount of money that the central bank has been able to recall is, I think, about two trillion naira. But they haven't supplied banks with the appropriate cash to replace that much money. I mean, there's been allegations, there's been some videos of banks ordering the cash, right? And I don't doubt that. In some isolated incidents, yes, that's probably the case for reasons best known to them. But the fact is, in my reporting, talking to bank executives, they simply don't have enough cash to supply people who want to get money out of the banks. There has now been a, an announcement that the deadline for using old notes has been suspended. Has that calmed things down at all? And does anybody now have a plan for how to fix this in the long term? No, I mean, that was only a temporary injunction that was supposed to lapse on February 15. The central bank has just said recently that the old notes will no longer be legal tender. And I think the most important thing is businesses and individuals have stopped accepting the old notes anyway, uh, because there's this social trust between the government and the government that has been broken. People think, look, if I accept these old notes today, what's the assurance that when I take it to the bank to swap it for the new notes, that I will be able to get money out of the bank? So businesses have stopped accepting the old notes anyway. So it doesn't matter what the Supreme Court or anyone says. If people just wouldn't accept the old notes, then <laughs> they are no longer legal tender. 
this is all obviously tremendously undesirable at the best of times, but Nigeria is obviously attempting to hold general elections, and that is no small logistical enterprise in normal circumstances either. Are the two things likely to have an impact on each other? Is the currency crisis going to have a direct impact on getting this election to happen? Yeah, you're right. There are elections in just a little over a week, presidential and parliamentary elections to come first. People seem very frustrated, obviously, with the cash shortage. Governors in the ruling party think they might be affected. They have bitterly complained to the president about this. In fact, the Supreme Court judgment that delayed the deadline was brought by three northern governors, all ruled from members of the ruling All Progressives Congress. So obviously there's been some political fallout from this and people, especially political elites, are jittery that ordinary Nigerians might draw a straight line from the hardship they're facing to punishing their party at the polls. And just finally, has it become an election issue directly? Bola Tinubu in particular seems to be suggesting that this is all some sort of plot against him personally. Yeah, he has said that at campaign stops that this is being designed to frustrate his candidacy to be president of Nigeria. Obviously, there's been direct calls from different parties, and I think different parties have taken different stances on it. I think most of the opposition parties have said we are disappointed by the rollout of this scheme, but we understand the idea in principle. So, yeah, there's been people staking out various points on this issue politically. Anu Adoye in Lagos, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. For a look at the challenges facing whoever wins this thing, I'm joined now by Dr. Lena Hoffman, Associate Fellow of Chatham House's Africa Programme and the lead researcher for its Social Norms and Accountable Governance Project. Lena, let's start with some thoughts perhaps about the outgoing president, Mohamedou Buhari. Does he leave much in the way of a legacy? I think it's really a tricky one to think of, given the fact that under his administration, Nigerians have become materially worse off. He's presided over two recessions. Nigeria is facing double-digit inflation. Insecurity is widespread across the country. And Nigeria is currently in the grips of fuel shortages. And as well, poorly implemented policy for redesigning the local currency, the Naira. So it's really a very poor legacy um, of economic management and uh, fiscal wastage that I think the president will be leaving behind. And this legacy contrasts very sharply with the high hopes and expectations of addressing economic growth, addressing corruption and security when he came into office in 2015. If the new president doesn't face the challenge of a tough act to follow, which is something, I guess, uh, where should they even start? What would be the, the first thing they could do that would really demonstrate that somebody new was in charge? Well, the new president doesn't have the luxury of a single starting point because there are multiple crisis fronts um, for Nigeria, as I mentioned earlier. The economy is in dire straits. There are real, real security problems across the Northwest. 
northeast, north central, and southeast of the country. In the southeast, there are secessionist agitations uh, rising in that area. And there's almost no section of Nigeria that is not impacted by insecurity at the moment. And unemployment is on the rise, particularly amongst young people. So all of these issues will pose a really, really big headache for the new president. So I think in terms of if you were to pin down a starting point, I think properly communicating how the new administration will address these multiple problems would be a simple but important starting point, given the amount of frustration, frustrations of Nigerians, particularly with the immediate challenges to do with the scarcity of the local currency. This is affecting the informal economy, daily earners are impacted, transportation is affected as well. So very, very thoughtful communication will be vital in calming tensions and reassuring Nigerians that the government is listening and Nigerians will, for the first time in a long time, have a responsive president. What kind of impact can any president make, though, however responsive or effective they may be on, I guess, not so much the specific individual problems you were chronicling, but the great big looming structural problems, the problems of basic governance and the problems of corruption? As I'm sure you know, Nigeria ranks 30th in Africa on the Ibrahim Index of Governance. It ranks 154th out of 180 in the world on the Corruption Perceptions Index, which puts it below. Russia and Pakistan. Is is it possible for one president to turn all that around? It isn't going to be an easy task for one president. I think it would take more than two tenures in office for these structural issues to be addressed fully and for the impact of reforms to make their way through the gigantuan Nigerian system. But I think in in terms of stemming the erosion to democracy, stemming the effects of poor governance, four years of a presidency can bring about a halt to at least, you know, uh, the freefall of the economy. Some key areas that would need to be addressed that will be very, very painful is addressing Nigeria's multiple and convoluted forex systems, Mm. and as well as, you know, getting rid of the fuel subsidy, which is in the tens of billions of dollars. This is a cost that could be invested into education, into healthcare, into meeting, you know, the immediate needs of the most vulnerable people in Nigeria. So what should be the priority of the new president and his administration would be to at least stem the bleeding to stop the bleeding, the hemorrhaging of the economy, and at least start to lay a foundation for building a stronger and more resilient economy. These conversations have been had several times in Nigeria, every election cycle, and they informed the victory of the current administration. But we have not seen the kind of sustained political will and engagement of a government to address Nigeria's long-standing government problems. 
I want to go back to a point you raised earlier, which is about the extraordinary youth of Nigeria. Roughly 70% of Nigerians are under 30 years old. And that, that right there is a staggeringly large cohort of some 150 million people. And that obviously is an extraordinary reservoir of potential human capital. How can an incoming president best tap that potential? An incoming president can best tap that potential by listening to begin with. Mm. I know this sounds like very, very simple thinking, Mm. but I think it has been vitally missing in the engagement between Nigeria's presidents and governments with its young people. So the fundamental rupture of the social contract between Nigeria's president, government and its young people is one that has to be addressed very carefully and very thoughtfully and very, very strategically by the next administration. Nigerian young people have demonstrated that they are a strategic resource for turning the economy around, for turning the country around. So a government that recognizes that and not just promises to restore the bond between the young and the government and uh, the state in Nigeria will go a long way in having their attention, holding their attention long enough for reforms to begin to set in. This is really a very, very serious turning point in Nigeria's trajectory. I think there was a recent World Bank study that showed that 52% of Nigerians were considering leaving the country permanently. Mm. So there are real conversations and continuous conversations that the government needs to have with its people. Dr. Lena Hoffman, thank you very much for joining us on The Foreign Desk. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and to our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.